First Timothy chapter one. Um, this is a letter written by Paul to Timothy, and as he describes him, his true child in the faith. We see in Acts that uh, Paul started discipling Timothy when he was very young, and he had you know been by his side for years, and now he's at the point where he can go off and uh, you know have responsibility uh, to to carry the the work of the Lord, and so. Uh, he has, Paul has sent him off to do this, and he's in Ephesus, and now he's right, Paul's writing a letter to him, with all grace, mercy, and peace from the Father and from Jesus. And we can see through the letter that there are a lot of difficulties have sprung up with the church in Ephesus, and so Paul is basically addressing these through uh, telling Timothy how to um, conduct himself, how to deal with certain things. So he, he tells them to ch- charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine than what Paul has established, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. So Gen- Genesis, particularly, maybe a little bit other, the, the books of Moses, and even other books in the Old Testament, often established a lot of genealogies. Well, you know, even Matthew and Luke do it where they established the genealogy of Jesus going back to Adam, Abraham, etc. Um, and so that was a big thing in those days, particularly amongst the Jews, to show, hey, I'm from this line. That means I am a blessed person of God. And Paul is saying anyone who dies to their old life and is reborn in Christ can stand before the Father as part of his family. So these gene- genealogies are meaningless and they're distracting. doesn't mean it's necessarily bad to like your family story as long as it's just something, you know, you might like a cheeseburger over a hamburger. Um, that's okay. Well, he, the, you know, <laughs> your genealogy is part of your family history. That's fine. But to become obsessed with that and think it makes you something special is to put yourself above the gospel. He said the only spiritual life is a life by faith, the stewardship from God. Verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. He's saying the spiritual life is simple and people try to complicate it with all their own agendas. But it's really the love of God within a people coming from pure hearts and clean minds and lived out through faith. He says other people are coming along and they're trying to complicate and corrupt these things for their own purposes. And they're not mature enough to even be teaching. They should not be teaching. Verse 8, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So he says the law of Moses is good, but they're corrupting it. 9, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. 
in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So he said, the purpose of the law is to point out the fact that you are full of sin and get you to turn around, not for all these obscure theories that are being created based on the law. He says, it's to point out these areas where you fall short of the glory of God so that you can wake up and turn around and offer yourself back to God, not for for these endless speculations, for, for things that are uh, created based on speculations of what uh, these things actually mean. It says to him, the law is pretty simple. <laughs> Follow it. That's not to say he's, he's advocating people get righteousness through the law. But he said, if you're a Jew trying to follow the law, the law is simple. Live according to this way. Realize that you cannot uh, live according to this way because y- y- you have continue to fall short. And then realize you need Jesus to overcome. He's not, of course, he makes very clear in all of those letters, he's not advocating for a Gentile who is not living by the way of the law, uh, to come into the way of the law, but simply to acknowledge that the law points the way to the need for Christ. And then Paul says, hey, I'm right there with you. He says in verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I have received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So he's saying, look, I was a sinner too, and the Lord has given me mercy. His grace has helped me to overcome and make me a servant, and he has strengthened me and appointed me for this service. So that now, Paul says, he operates in in and through faith and love through Christ Jesus. 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He says, everyone should know this and repeat it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul again says, I am the foremost. But he brings mercy. His perfect patience is displayed through the fact that we have to be transformed. It's not an instant process. It's a process that takes our lifetimes continually being transformed more into his likeness, eternal life. And to God be the glory for the marvelousness of this plan that he is working out in us. The fact that we give ourselves to this process and he works it out in us is his glory in the world. And in 18, he gives him his charge. This I charge, sorry, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may not, sorry, that they may learn not to blaspheme. 
So Paul says, I know, Timothy, that you can be entrusted with this responsibility because of prophecies that were made about you and that you will wage good spiritual warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. So you'll be strong in the Lord. You'll believe that he will overcome through you and that the spiritual warfare will enact uh, winning for the Lord in the people you're ministering to. He says some have rejected it. He mentions a couple of them. And he says, I've handed them over to Satan. So you see Paul here says basically in the spirit that he has removed some of the grace of the Lord for these two so that they would under, stop hurting the others in the body of Christ and receive the, the due justice of the world by not, no longer having the, the grace and protection of the Lord. It's a, it's a pretty strong testament to the power given to a mature son of God, what Paul has just said that he's done there. And then we're on to chapter 2. Verse 1, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, that the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling you the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So he says, pray all the time in supplications and in intercession and in thanksgiving. So he's, he's offering us different ways of prayer for all people, for the kings, in order that the people of God can have a peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified life. He, he's not asking that these people go and do anything that is outside of themselves, but to order their lives that they worship the Lord that they pray for others, that the kingdom advances not through their going out and doing hard work, but through the life of God being evident in them, but that prayer is allowing them to exist and by others seeing the light of Christ within them. He says God wants everyone to be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth. And he says there's only one way to do it. There's only one God and there's only one mediator, Christ Jesus he gave himself up as a ransom for us. And the testimony of this fact is has a proper time for each one. And in the end, there will be a proper time where every knee will bow. And he says, you know, I'm an apostle, which means one sent by God as a teacher to the Gentiles in faith and truth. I have been sent to establish this kingdom, this gospel amongst you people. Eight, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. 
but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So he's saying that everyone should live in peace and in prayer. He continually comes back to prayer being the answer. If we're in prayer, there's not going to be this quarreling because we're going to be God-focused and not self-focused. And he says, women need to be coming to the fellowship dressed uh, modestly. He said, these women are showing up and they're dressed to kill. You, you see it more today, not so much, well, I mean, depends where you are, but um, what I've seen um, in in churches is women dressed like they're on the beach. I mean, that's I'm making that a little overdramatic. They're not in bikinis, but scantily clad, like trying to catch the eyes of men and women. And so this is, um, it's, it's not good for anybody. It's the woman trying to pro, uh, prop herself up to look good and to make other women, uh, uh, often women dress up more to impress other women than men, um, but, but also to catch the eye of men. Men are highly distracted by this. So the, the woman dressing this way is, you know, she's not focused on the Lord. She's focused on another thing. Men are distracted by how she looks and women are distracted by how she looks. And in this case, he's saying that, you know, they can't afford to dress that way themselves. And so everyone's distracted about how the person is dressing instead of focusing on the Lord, which is why they're all there. So he says, you know, women, and of course this applies to everybody, be about the Lord and his works, not about how you're trying to impress others. In verse 12, I've heard it taught, and I'm pretty sure this was the verse. Um, He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. I believe this is the verse. I'm not positive. I don't really get into studying Greek, um, but I, but I, sometimes it's you can learn a lot from it. Um, and I've, I've talked recently about versions of the Bible. The most important thing is that you're being led and taught by the Holy Spirit. Um, but a, a Bible translation can absolutely affect how you think about things. And so I have heard it taught that the word here. Uh, that is translated man every other time in the Bible that it's translated is translated husband, which really changes the meaning that um, a woman should not exercise authority over her husband. And this is very clear in scripture, very, very clear, very, very important and a little different than exercising authority over a man. But anyways, um, We know that there are several women in Paul's uh, travels who are teaching uh, the word of the Lord to others, and he is quite on board with them. So in this case, that understanding would make more sense, or it could be that the particular women involved here, who he's just mentioned, are not mature, and they should not be having any authority over anyone just because they're rich. And this is a problem in the church today, very much so, that people who have money to contribute and support the, you know, the ongoing worldliness of a church are given authority because the church, the pastor, feels like they need the money. Well, that that's the beginning of the end for a body of believers if they allow themselves to be uh, dis- distracted or persuaded by money 
Um, just because somebody is contributing money should not make them have any authority in the church. Only maturity in the Lord should lead to authority in the church. And if we do have that understanding, then the, what he says about Adam and Eve makes perfect sense. Um, and then that's the end of chapter 2. I'll go ahead and do chapter 3. It, I'm guessing it won't, I won't have too much to say. Let's see. So he's just finished talking about leadership. And he says, if anyone desires to be an overseer, it's a noble task he desires. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. A husband of only one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well and all, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or be made or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So we just mentioned leadership, and he says, here's how you choose a leader. You don't choose them based on uh, outward things that the world might choose, but you choose them on godliness in the Lord. And he gives lots of examples that we should see in someone in order for that person to be raised up as a leader in the house of the Lord. And then he goes on to mention deacons. And so deacons, if you remember kind of early on in Acts, first third of it at least, uh, they they have to appoint the seven. Uh, and I, I think they're called deacons at that time. But you have the main leadership and then you have others to, to serve and help. So this is the deacons, the servants, Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So it's a very similar list. In my reading, it doesn't seem quite as high a standard, although the same sort of things are mentioned. However, he does mention something that's pretty cool. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So they must understand that this spiritual walk is a walk of faith, and they must be clear and conscious and understanding that this is the way. There must be, they, they may not be as far along as the overseers in it, but they must understand that this is the way that they are walking in and that others need to be walking in. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. He's saying, you know, with this service unto the Lord, you, you attain unto better standing before the Lord and in the Lord. And also grow in confidence in your faith. And so the service is good. 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. 
So uh, I'll get to that last poem in a little bit. But they, they were dealing with, you know, you had Jewish people who are strongly adamant that certain Jewish ways of living should be. You had, you had Gentile Greek people who worshipped all these other gods and had all these other foreign, you know, cultural ways about them. And he's saying, look, this is the way of life for those who are in the body of Christ. I'm setting it forth what's important and what's not some of these other things, they're just decisions people make. Do you want cheese on your burger or not? But others are imperative. And so I'm setting forward forth for you the right way of living in the Lord. If you want to be a part of the household of God, this is the way. It's the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. So we are the temple of God and we need to act accordingly. And then he gives this last little poem to wrap it up. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. So what is that God, that mystery? He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So Jesus actually came as a man in the flesh. But through the Spirit, he was vindicated in the world because he obeyed the Father in every way. The angels saw this work and he was proclaimed amongst the nations and believed on in all the world and taken up in glory that the God the Father would be fulfilled all in all. And, and then comes us. We are the culmination of this. And that is it for uh, chapter three, first half of First Timothy, and I'll talk to you tomorrow. God bless you.